it's good for me to be back here. I see some very friendly, familiar faces, but I also see some new ones. And uh, I always get excited when Matt calls me and asks if uh, I can come and speak on a Sunday. And uh, it's just a great privilege to, to see how this church is thriving, uh, even through a pandemic. And uh, it's exciting to do that. And also just the impact that you're having in your community. Um, Today, I'm actually going to be preaching a sermon that my son-in-law preached about a month ago, and it had such an impact on me and such a, a reminder to me of the gospel and the power of the gospel and the power of Jesus's words of what he said. And so it's easy for us to get very discouraged through a pandemic, and if you also look at just our world and everything that's happening, the political climate, all that kind of stuff, um, it can get discouraging no matter who you are. And there's always those people that, you know, every time you see them, there's a smile, hey, things are good and stuff. And you're like, are you kidding me? Really? You gotta be lying, okay? I know you can put it on, but even the best of us can get discouraged, right? And so hopefully today, um, this message will encourage you and uh, hopefully lift your spirits a little bit, um, but also I, I pray that it will convict you a little bit and, and cause us to go to our knees and really just thank God for what he has done for us. So let me just open us in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you so much for this morning. I thank you for just the privilege of being able to bring your word to these sweet people. I pray, Lord, that they would hear your words and not mine. If there's anything that I say that line with what your scripture is, I pray that you would make their ears deaf. But Lord, we want to bring you glory in everything that we do. So I pray today that your presence would move the hearts of people to come closer to you and to surrender their life to you. Lord, we, uh, we trust you. We love you. And our faith is in you and you alone. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, if you want, you can open up to John chapter 14. We're going to be in that. We're going to be in really just the first six verses, six or seven verses. And um, you can go ahead and turn to that. Um, in this section of verses, this is probably some of the most scandalous things that Jesus ever said was in John chapter 14. In fact, John chapter 14, verse number six it says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus said that. Now just soak that in for a minute for someone to claim that and say that. I believe it was the theologian N.T. Wright who said, the claims of Jesus are both radically inclusive and exclusive. No matter how broken, screwed up, sinful, no matter what you've done, Jesus will take you in just as you are. No one can come to the Father but through Jesus, but anyone can come to the Father through Jesus. Just think about that. No one can come to the Father but through Jesus, but anyone can come to the Father through Jesus. But Jesus makes it clear, very clear to us. He is not offering himself up as like a buffet of different religious beliefs. He's not giving us an option. Otherwise, he would have said, I am the way, the truth, and a really good option for your life. 
but he didn't say that, did he? But <clears throat> that isn't an option that Jesus left open for us. Here he's making a clear and undeniable claim about who he is and what he's come to do. He's presenting himself as the only option for eternal life. The only option for eternal life. Now, this statement in many in our culture today has become a stumbling block for them. They struggle with it. Even those that have grown up in the church, it's still a stumbling block, especially this new culture, this new generation that's coming up, the millennials and the Generation Z. They, they look at that and say, well, that can't be because there's got to be other, other ways to get to God. There's other ways to worship God. There may even be other gods. I remember when I was um, a youth pastor, in fact, it was my first full-time ministry position was to be a youth pastor to high school students. I had some students that were, there was no doubt, they loved God, they loved church, they loved being around church, they loved serving and so on. And then I had others that loved youth group, they loved coming to youth group, and you thought that they would love God, but then later on, as you see the years go by, many of them went to college, got educated, and walked away from their faith. And there's many of those students to this day are still not walking with God. And it saddens me and it breaks my heart. You see, they loved Jesus and they loved the church, so they thought. In fact, even their parents were always at church trying to raise them up in the best way. But in the end, their son or daughter had flat out rejected what had been handed to them. You see, they walked away from the church, not only the church, but they walked away from the Jesus the church is meant to represent. The Jesus that we're supposed to model, they walked away from. Now, this was, it's crazy to say, almost 20, 21 years ago that I was a youth pastor. But it shouldn't surprise us where today's youth, again, we'll call them Generation Z, are in their faith. Because the gap between this generation and each generation before that keeps getting wider and wider and wider apart compared to where their faith is. I want to look at a couple, a breakdown of some generations. It should be up there, the PowerPoint. Okay, yep. We have the GI generation. Now, these are all the generations that are alive right now um, in the United States or in the earth. GI generation, and there's very few of them left, but they were born between 1901 and 1926. Then we have the silent generation, born between 1927 and 1945. Then we have the baby boomers. Yay, baby boomers. That's me. Okay, from 1946 to 1964, I just get in there, I was born in 1962. Generation X, which is born 1965 to 1980, and then the millennial or Generation Y generation, born 1981 to 2000, that's Pastor Matt, he's in that, that area. And then Generation Z, which is from 2001 to the present, to today. And each of these generations has 
progressively stepped further and further away from participation in a local church and also believing the truth claims of the gospel. In fact, one pastor illustrated it this way. Think of a spiritual baton, the generational handing off, not just of religion and morals, but the core theological truths we find in the gospel. Okay, so it's not just going to church to like a social club, but it's actually passing on the biblical truths that we find in the gospel. Take a look at this, these breakdown now of the generation. The silent generation, 11% were unaffiliated with a church. Baby boomers, it jumps to 17% unaffiliated. Generation X, 23% unaffiliated with a church. And then we get to millennials, the older millennials, it jumps to 34, and the younger millennials all the way up to 36% that are unaffiliated with a church. And if we were looking at the Generation Zs, when they come adults, I'm sure that number is going to increase even more. Now, don't get me wrong. I understand that church attendance is superficial, okay? You can't just look at church attendance and, and make all the numbers, but it's still a number that tells us a story. It tells us of something that's happening. In fact, Generation Z kids, the children of millennials, take church, the community of people where gospel truth is supposed to be lived and preached, less, serier than, less serious than their parents, and also they're going less to church and more and more. So, now since COVID, I totally understand and get staying home from church. It's tempting, right? You can stay in your pajamas, you can sit on the couch, have a snack, just sort of do it and feel like you've attended church. But it's not the same. Because what's happening is more and more are not just staying home from church to watch it online, they're just staying home church and not watching church at all. Some people now in the church, in the church that I go, we've even asked this question, how many of you turn it on but don't pay attention? So you feel like you've attended church, but you're actually not listening because there's all the distractions of kids and everything else going on. So you see, there's a movement away from the truths of the gospel. And if the church isn't a reputable voice for truth for our kids, the multitude of voices in the culture will happily take its place. And we see that happen. And for many, it already has. In fact, the postmodern culture is replacing the church as a voice of truth, teaching them morality and theology that is removed completely from the gospel. In fact, some people will say Facebook and what they post on Facebook and the different things has a greater voice in the spiritual health of a of a, a young millennial than the church ever did. That's scary. That's scary. Let me look at just a little bit of what the Gen Zers believe. First thing, personal happiness is the top priority in their life. Personal happiness is above everything else. Now, as I say this, think about that of where you are, but also think about people that you know, and how you look at them through their social media posts and things like that, and you'll see that's it. Everybody wants to be happy. 
The other thing is, is that there's many paths to God. They're very reluctant to say what Jesus said, that there's only one way. Also, truth is relative. <clears throat> right and wrong is not objective. You can determine for yourself what is right and wrong, true and not true. In fact, the mantra of the day is live your truth, right? Live your truth. Whatever you believe, go for it. Many believe there is no objective standard of truth that they need to live by. But whatever you've defined as truth, here is a truth that you cannot escape. Beliefs have consequences. They do. Beliefs have consequences. Beliefs about what truth is, beliefs about God, Scripture, Jesus, they all have consequence. In fact, the result of believing in the pursuit of happiness at all costs Many paths to God and relative truth is this, troubled hearts. And we're going to look in scripture how Jesus addresses that. In fact, we have a generation whose interior life is in rough shape. Generation Z reports more mental health problems than any other generation prior. In fact, an article published in the University of Alberta out of Canada reported Generation Zers are more anxious than any previous generation. Part of that uptick is, uptick is people are more open to sharing their mental health struggles than ever before. So we see that, but we also see something else that is startling, suicide. Suicide of the younger generation is the highest rate it has ever been in history that they remember. Why? Because they have troubled hearts. Now, let me share something with you. If you struggle with anxiety and depression, it doesn't necessarily mean that you don't love Jesus. Okay? It means that you're in a broken world and you're in a body that experiences the effectiveness of that brokenness. We have to remember that. We live in a broken world. Jesus even experienced moments when he experienced trouble, okay, that he wept. There were different things that he struggled with, but never out of control. But the trouble people feel deep within their souls today, especially that younger generation, is something way deeper. Because there's a difference between trouble coming upon you just momentarily and then residing in you continually. Think about that. It's not just an event that happens or a circumstance that's troubling you, but that it's constant nagging inside of you. That's a whole different type of trouble. The trouble that resides in the souls of people today isn't just due to what's going on in our world today. It comes from what they believe. It comes from their beliefs, their worldview. The solution to our restless, anxious, worried souls isn't found in chasing after happiness or defining what truth is as we see it, it comes, it comes as we'll see by embracing truth and it's told here in this passage. So we're gonna look at John chapter 14. And here we find Jesus sharing um, a really private moment with his disciples. Um, and if we look at John 14, this is the part where this is a continuation. It's not a start of something, okay? This is where when they divided up the chapters and verses, 
it has a tendency to sort of hurt the narrative because we think 13 was one chapter and Jesus was saying something, then he changed the topic. They all flow together. So chapter 13 really gives us a, a picture of what he talks about in John 14. So this part is actually... Uh, John 13 and 14 are actually part of what they call the upper room discourse. Now, there's four discourses that Jesus does in the Gospels. Um, the first one is the Sermon on the Mount. The second is the parables of the kingdom. And then the Olivet Discord, which was given on the Mount of Olives. All of those were public. This one is private. And it's also his final discourse. Um, because what we see is at this point, Jesus's public ministry was over. Jesus now is in the upper room. They're celebrating the feast of the Passover. It should be a time where they're celebrating and everything else. But Jesus is there and he is getting ready to go to the cross. And as he starts to talk down or talk to these uh, disciples and give them a picture of what it is, this meeting and what he shared to his closest followers is one of the most intimate discourses that we find in the Bible. At the beginning of John 13, we find Jesus washing the feet of the disciples. Many of you know that story, okay? Modeling that self-giving, sacrificial love of God. And then we think about the next couple things. It should be a very joyous time for him and celebrating everything that God had done. They're, reminding, they're, they're being reminded the feast of the Passover was to celebrate them coming out, the Hebrews coming out of Egypt, the great exodus, God delivering them from bondage, all that stuff. But this is very different time for Jesus and his disciples. Jesus knows what's coming next. In, in chapter 13, Jesus says some things that I would say troubled the disciples a little bit. Let's look at him. In verse 21, he says, someone in his inner circle will betray him. Now, you got to understand, these guys have been walking with Jesus intimately with him for three years. And so they know each other, and then all of a sudden, Jesus said, one of you is going to betray me. Put yourself in their situations. What? No, we're, all, we're, we're good. We're all, you know, somebody got troubled. The one who knew was going to betray him was definitely troubled because he got found out. But the other thing is, the other ones are like, well, who is it? And then the fear that it might even be one of them. Verse 31 to 35, he talks about that he's going to be leaving them. He was not an old man, okay? He was still in his early 30s, and they're like, what? We've had this huge ministry, this phenomenal, successful ministry, healing people. People are following you. They're calling you, you know, Hosanna, the Messiah, all that stuff. What, what's going on here? And then the last one, Peter will deny him three times in verse 38. Jesus calls Peter out. Now, you got to remember who Peter was, right? Peter is the one, Lord, I'll follow you wherever you go. And in front of all the disciples, he's saying, I'll even die for you. And then Jesus says, yeah, he's going to deny me three times. Just put yourself in that environment right now in the upper room and what they're going through. Jesus isn't sugarcoating anything for them. In fact, there is trouble for Jesus on the horizon and for his disciples. So think about 
If that was you, would you feel anxious, worried, fearful? The guy that you're following, you've just walked away from your career and everything else and put everything into this and say, okay, I'm with you, I'm going, and then all of a sudden you get this news. That's where we find the disciples. So let's look at John 14.1. It says, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. Wow, they just heard all of this. Jesus knows what they're thinking. And then he gives them this, let not your hearts be troubled. Now, we look at this verse as something comforting, right? You say, it's okay, everything will be all right. Like if you have your kids and they're all upset and you just start saying, everything's going to be okay. It should be comforting. This is, this is a phrase that Jesus gives to them, but he gives it in the context of a command. It's not a suggestion. It's a command to him. They are, he's basically saying, stop. Stop worrying. Stop being anxious. Stop being all stressed out. Just put an end to it. And you think, well, that's sort of hard. But yet Jesus is saying this because he's given a command because he also knows that he has given us the capability to obey that command. It would be really cruel for him to give that command when we couldn't obey that command, right? But he gives that command because he tells them, you have the ability and the power to control where your anxiety is, where it is placed. So he says, stop it. And then he gives three reasons in the next few verses of why we should not be troubled and why they shouldn't be troubled. And for me, I think they're really good reasons. In fact, I would say they're the only reasons why we can move through this world that we live in today with any sense of peace. The first one, it's because of who you know. When he says, believe in God, believe also in me. You see, these disciples, they knew Jesus. They didn't just know about Jesus, they knew Jesus. So did they have any reason not to trust Jesus? Any reason? No, right? In fact, they had witnessed Jesus heal the blind, the sick, the lame, the demon-possessed. He calmed a storm, multiplied the loaves and fishes and fed thousands, raised the dead, and whatever else is on Jesus' resume that's not even written in Scripture, right? We know there was a whole bunch of other things that happened. Of course, they didn't have any reason not to take Jesus at his word. Every claim he made about himself was true. They saw the power of God clearly demonstrated in his life, his teachings, and his miracle work. They knew him. They saw his divine displays. They saw the glory of God at work through him. But the disciples, more than just seeing the work of Jesus, they knew Jesus. The first and most basic theological question is do you know Jesus? Do you know Jesus? And that's where it begins. God is a relational God and longs for a relationship with you. And the way to begin that relationship through Jesus is only Jesus. Jesus says it's because of who they knew they do not need to be consumed by the troubles that face them. That's for us, guys. We do not need to be troubled by the problems that we have in our life or we see even in our community. Why? Because of who we know. 
We know Jesus Christ. Let's look at the next verse, verse 14 too. It says, In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? Now, the Bible speaks a lot of heaven. 532 times, actually, it talks about heaven. But notice how Jesus speaks of heaven here. He doesn't speak of heaven locationally. He speaks of it relationally, right? He talks about where God is is where heaven is. It's not the geography of where heaven is is not important. Wherever God is, that's where heaven is. And that's where he is preparing a place for us. For us. In fact, he says there's many rooms there. Um, some translations um, in your Bible it might say mansions, uh, that there's many mansions. Uh, some may translate it as rooms, but a, a good, basically a good translation would be apartments, okay? And what it is is if we go back in history at that time, most of the people did not live in houses as we think of houses. They lived in tents. The majority of people lived in tents. There were some that lived in buildings that were you know, mud bricks and all that kind of stuff, but the majority of them lived in tents. And what would happen is, as you raise your kids and your kids got older and married, what would mom and dad do? Not send them away, what mom and dad would do would actually add another room to the tent. So if you have grown parents that are, or grown kids that still live at home, don't panic, that's not what it's about. It's not a command for us to keep them at home and all that stuff, even though the, the Amish still do that. Um, but that's what he's talking about, that there's a room that gets put on, okay? And God can keep putting more and more and more rooms on. He is preparing a place for those that are become his children, the sons and daughters. So as we look forward to this, our hearts do not need to be troubled because of who we know and because of where we'll go, right? We know where we're going to go. We know where our destination is, and that's in heaven, which is where the Father is. In John 14, 3, it says, And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, and where I am, you may be also. Now, biblical scholars are split a little bit on the translation of this. Some of them think that he's just talking about making away the cross, okay? That the cross is coming forward, and that's how he's going to make a way for salvation, and we can get to the Father. Others think that I'm personally going back to the Father, and I'm going to prepare a place for you. I'm going to make a room for you so that it's all ready when you get here. I believe it's both. I don't think it's one or the other. I think it's absolutely both. Yes, he's talking about the cross and making a way for us to have a relationship with God, but he's also saying, literally, I'm going to go to the Father and prepare a place for you so that you have a place to go. Jesus makes a way for us and a place for us that also will be personalized. I think about when my wife was pregnant with our first child, which is our son, Justin, um, I remember us getting all excited for one thing that they would become, there was a date when he's supposed to be born coming into. Um, but we, in the meantime, got a room all ready for him. It was his nursery. And everything about that nursery, from the color of the paint to um, the sheets on the crib to the decorations to the, um, 
stuffed animals, everything that we could think of, we were making that room his. It was personalized to him. Jesus is saying the same thing. I'm preparing a place for you, and it's for you. It's not this big YMCA we're all going to hang out. Okay, it is a room specific to you because God is so personal that way. He is preparing a room. The other thing he says is he says, I'm coming back. I'm going to come back and get you. And some, th some people think that, or some scholars think that he was referring to that he's coming back. He's sending the Holy Spirit. But I don't believe that. I believe he was actually referring to, I will physically come back and take you to the Father. So, I don't know about you, but I'm excited about that. In fact, actually, as, as I look around the world that we live in, the craziness of the politics that have been going on, I don't put my faith and trust in politics. I don't put my faith and trust in a government. My faith and trust is in Jesus Christ and Christ alone because I know a politician, no matter how great they are, can never have enough change or make enough change to satisfy my heart. It ain't going to happen. So I have my faith and trust in Jesus Christ. So in our momentary troubles, anxieties, discouragement, and when these worries come upon us, things that are ultimately, if we look at a mere blip in eternity, believers in, in Christ are reminded that we know it's who we know, where we'll go, and ultimately what he'll show us when we get there. Our hope needs to be anchored not in what we experience in this life, as I said, because that can change in an instant. Many of you know that, how quick life can change. Our hope must be anchored in something eternal. So we have the context of 2,000 years of history from this, right? But if you were those disciples and you don't have, the cross hasn't happened yet, your thinking and your perception of things is going to be very different. Your frame of reference will be very different than how we get to do it. So you may sit there and, if you were one of those disciples, be very, very confused about what Jesus is saying. Because in John 14, 4 to 5, he says to the disciples, and you know the way to where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going, and how can we know the way? I just want to say I love Thomas. I absolutely love Thomas. He's probably in this group the only honest guy. So have you ever been in a classroom where the teacher's talking about something, and you're clueless, and you're just like, okay, yep, I get it, all that stuff. Well, Thomas is the guy in the middle of the class say, wait, wait, I don't get it. I don't know what you're talking about. It's over my head. I'm completely clueless. I have no idea. And then Jesus says, you know the way where I'm going. And Thomas says, no, we don't. Where are you going? And if we don't know where you're going, how can we know how to get there? And I'm so glad he said that because this opened the door for Jesus to give this response, which, is perf which perfectly encapsulates the whole gospel. John 14, 6, Jesus said to him, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So if you think about Thomas in this big question mark of a brain, I think of my granddaughter 
um, Everly. She turns three in April. And she's at that age where everything is why. Grandpa, why? 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 Well, no matter what we say, why? Why? And she has this curiosity. Thomas was that type of person. He was constantly asking why, how, where, when. He literally had a question mark for a brain. But Jesus was in the process of turning that question mark into an explanation point. Now, if we know the story of Thomas, Tom eventually, Thomas eventually went on um, to carry the gospel into India and to share his faith to, that literally transformed a nation. But at this point, okay, he's questioning because he hasn't seen the resurrection yet. He hasn't experienced that. He doesn't know all that's going to happen. Even though Jesus is telling them, he's questioning And as he's questioning, you can tell there is this anxiety and worry that he has of what's going on. As Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Now, we may say that sounds very narrow, right? If we look at it, there's no other way. It sounds awfully dogmatic, but when I received Christ... I close my mind to every other option out there. I love how uh, G.K. Chesterton put it. An open mind is really a mark of foolishness. Like an open mouth, minds were made to shut. The uh, object of opening the mind, as of opening the mouth, is to shut it again on something solid. I'm going to read it again. I want you to think about that. An open mind is really a mark of foolishness. Like an open mouth, minds were made to shut. The object of opening the mind, as of opening the mouth, is to shut it again on something solid. Our minds are designed by God to close on something solid. And the only solid truth we can close on is Jesus. And if this seems dogmatic, Jesus was dogmatic. Right? He said that actually on the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 7, verse 13 and 14. He says, Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide, and the, and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. And here he says, No one comes to the Father but through me. You know, that eliminates every other belief system just by that statement. Now, I also want to say that does not mean that we have to be intolerant or disrespectful towards those who have a different belief. And I'll concede, many, many people out there are sincere in their beliefs. They're either sincerely ignorant or sincerely wrong. But we still have to show respect. Jesus said, I am the way, because he takes you there. He's the one you need to know, and he's the one that will get you there. So, easy illustration of this. If I was to come into a new city, I've never been there before, I don't have access to my GPS, and I don't have access to a map, and I stop to find somebody that knows the way of where I want to go in the city. 
and they say, well, Jeff, you can go from here, go down the street, about a quarter of a mile, you'll see a Tim Hortons, make a right, and then make a quick left, and then make another left, and then go, I don't know, a couple hundred yards, and you make a right, and there's going to be a building that looks like this, and he goes on and on and tells me all this way. Am I going to remember that, and will I get there? No, right? But it's very different if he says, you know what, you probably won't remember all the instructions. It's a little complicated. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to get in the car with you and I'm going to take you there. So that person now becomes the way, right? Why? Because they're taking me there. That's what it is for Jesus Christ. Jesus says he doesn't give us a whole list of rules. Okay, follow all of these and then hopefully you'll get there. No, he says, I'm going to take you there. I am your hope. I am the way. Connect with me and do that. That's what happens with Jesus Christ. He says, I'm not going to give you a whole bunch of instructions and hope you get there. I'm going to actually personally take you to the Father. Now, if we look in the Old Testament, there's a whole story of failure after failure of people trying to follow instructions to get to God, right? and they fail over and over again. We know as people, we're really bad at following instructions. I'm a guy, I definitely am, but we do, we struggle with that. Jesus knows us and knows us intimately and says, you need me to get you to the Father. Because he is the only way. Jesus is not an option for eternal life. So we live in a generation today where we have so many ways of distracting ourselves from all the trouble around us. But actually knowing how to quiet our troubled hearts is hard. Doesn't happen. That's why you see addiction is up, uh, of all sorts of drugs and things like that. Uh, Facebook is another way, social media is another way we try to trouble our hearts. Has Facebook ever, ever calmed any heart? No. It actually, they've proven that it actually, by watching it, will bring your anxiety up because you, you will automatically compare yourself to whoever's on there and think that you're not good enough. And that's why people are always posting all the good things. They never post all the bad things that happen to them. You know, they always post all the good things. So as we go through this and we think about the struggles that the young people are in today, they're not new. The human story is one of spiritual amnesia. We forget that life has limits and constraints. We forget the truth that God has given us, and that truth is Jesus Christ. If we look at Adam and Eve in the garden, define good and evil on their terms, right? Okay, look what happened to them. Well, it's happening today with us too. As we see young people start to de determine what their truth wants to be, we see the consequences of it also. And the more that we want to define truth on our terms, the more it leads to a spiritual death. I think Paul says it best when he says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And this is why we need to not only not be troubled, but we need to cast our faith on Jesus Christ. You see, Jesus says, believe in God, believe also in me. In other words, I'm telling you right now that if you have seen me, you have seen the Father, and I and the Father are one. Truth isn't some nebulous, 
relative thing that we can define however we want to. Truth is a person. If Jesus never entered the picture, maybe you can make that argument. But he entered the human story. And because of that, we have to deal with it, we have to face with it, and we should embrace it. Embodied truth entered the human story and proved himself to be just that over and over and over again. So, I'm going to finish with asking you a few questions. Who do you say that Jesus is? Is he the way? Or in your mind, is he just one of those potential options? And if it's the second of the two, just let me ask you this. How is it with your heart? Is it in a good place? Or are you anxious, troubled, worried? Or in Jesus' words, just troubled? He calls for us to put our faith and trust in him, not in the things of this world. As he challenged the disciples before he went to the cross, he knew what they were going to encounter. If you read the story of the disciples, of where they went in all the different places to spread the gospel, and also how they were martyred, okay, they didn't walk away from their faith. Why? Because they knew Jesus Christ. They knew the truth. And they knew no matter what circumstance they were in, still their hearts were not troubled because they knew that Jesus Christ was who he said he was. Can you say the same? Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for your word. I thank you, Lord, for this discourse that Jesus gave that we got to look into a very intimate discussion that he had with his followers. What a privilege that was, but also what it means to us. Lord, in a world that is so, seems so uncertain, not sure what tomorrow will bring, but what we do know is that you hold tomorrow. And all we have to do is surrender to that. Lord, I pray for those here today that, that know you, but yet they've taken their eyes off of you, just like Peter did when he stepped out of the boat and walked on the water and he started looking at the storm around him and his faith wavered. I pray, Lord, that you would strengthen them today, that they would remind themselves to just keep their eyes focused on you. But I also pray for that one or two that might be here today that can honestly say, I don't know Jesus. And I do have a troubled heart, and I am anxious and worried. I pray, Lord, that your Holy Spirit is working on their heart today, drawing them to yourself. And I pray that today would be the day that they put their faith and trust in you, the anchor of our faith, the truth, the way, and our life. In Jesus' name, amen.